Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. This has been the hallmark verse we've used in this series. And what we're looking for, guys, is understanding where we are and where we need to be. The hardest part that anybody has in life is to look in the mirror and realize this is where I am. Just being honest with yourself, right? That's the hardest thing that you have to do. When it comes to the spiritual side, the church today talks a big game. But when it's time to pony up, there's not a lot of substance. You look at the churches in America today, uh, and sadly, the churches around the world are trying to copy the model of the churches in America because that's what they see on TV and online and all of that kind of stuff, is that you see a whole lot of hype where there's nothing behind it. It's kind of like the Wizard of Oz syndrome. You've got this great, big, powerful thing sitting in front of you, and it's awe-inspiring, it's, it's incredible, and then you pull behind the curtain, and there's some short, old man with a weird voice. Right? And that is the church today. And part of the reason is, 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 is there's a couple, and there's a number of reasons I can really go into. But, but one of the reasons is, is the, the reality of it is we just simply have not accepted Scripture as truth. We read it, we study it, we think we understand it, we, we remember what we've heard from the time that we were kids. But you know, if you truly believe what the Word of God said, your whole behavior changes. I mean, if you really believe that you're on a trajectory to complete destruction, and God himself sent his son into the world to die on your behalf, and all he asks in return is you to share that message, your whole life committed to him sharing that message, if you really believe that, and are really grateful. Imagine how your behavior would be. But what do we do? We take things for granted. It doesn't take long. We take our spouses for granted. We take our, our why don't you look at him? I mean, why? I thought your neck was sore, but apparently not. Woo! You got an interesting ride home too today. We drove separate. No, we're preparing beforehand. But I mean, we take our kids for granted, we take our jobs for granted, we take our homes for granted, we take our country for granted, we take our freedoms for granted, we take our wealth for granted, we take everything for granted. No, that's right. We're perfect. Listen, you will stop taking things for granted so much if you leave this country and go somewhere else. It is a travesty that you cannot go to Central America and get a Diet Coke. Trust Beyond all things. They have Coke Light. Let me tell you something. It's a farce. Same color can and make the logo look similar. It's not the same. Don't lie to me. It's a travesty. There are things, I mean, think about this. When you're hungry, what do you do? Cook something, microwave something, which counts as cooking. In fact, Brett was telling me the other day he's not in here, so I'm going to tell the story. He's like, yeah, I cooked supper last night. I said, really? you got to understand, he's a single man, 20 years old, and grandma still takes care of him pretty well. I said, well, what did you cook? He's like, well, I took some deli chicken, I put some cheese on it, and I melted it in the microwave. <laughs> and he's back. <laughs> he cooked supper. <laughs> That's where we are. When you're hungry, what do you do? You find food anywhere. Chicken Go to McDonald's. It's not really food, but you'll survive. I mean, we can get it, but you know what? That's not true everywhere else. I mean, they are hand to mouth each and every day. You realize that if you 
drive and own an automobile, no matter how bad it is, you are wealthier than 47% of the world. One car, old jalopy. That's crazy to think about. And what do we do here? We whine and we complain. What do we do in the church? We take it for granted. I mean, if you really believe time was short, if you knew that next Thursday was your last day on earth, what would your uh, preparation, your reaction be? How would you take the news? Who would you call? Who would you go see? This is your last chance. You knew the time. When it was going to end, how would you respond? Be completely different. But what are we going to do between here and next Thursday? Whatever we want. Because we have no intentionality in what we do. You see, in 2 Timothy, when he is telling, Paul is telling Timothy, that all scripture, you've got to understand, is given by the inspiration of God. And there's a reason that we have it that is profitable, you might profit, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, instruction, and righteousness, because the man of God, he needs to be equipped. He needs to be equipped. Because we have worship. We've lost our heart. The church has lost its way. We've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus a curse, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are diversities of gifts with the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries with the same Lord, and there are diversities of activities. But it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. To one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another word of knowledge through the same Spirit. Another faith by the same spirit. Another gifts of healing. Healings by the same spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another discerning of spirits. To another different kinds of tongues. To another the interpretation of tongues. But it's one and the same spirit who works all these things, distributing each one individually as he wills. You know, we, we, we keep transitioning. We keep going. We started with the armor of God, looking at that, how we use it, where it came from. Now we've got into these spiritual gifts, breaking these down one by one. Saying, okay, God, what have you given me to equip me to do your job? The problem is in America, uh, and it's true in a lot of parts of the world anymore, is that we are looking to be fed, but we're not looking to go out. We try to find a church that makes us feel comfortable. We like the pastor. We like the preaching. We like the music. We find something about it. We like, we like the colors. We like the coffee shop. Whatever it is that draws you in there, we're looking for something that makes us comfortable. And yet... The uncomfortability is all through Scripture. Because once you get comfortable, you get complacent. And we have a complacency problem. I mean, you think about it. Just think of this the last election. In the last 30 days, let's just say. All of a sudden, we're like, guys, we need to start praying. We need to get up. And then the week leading up, boy, we really got to get praying. Why do we ever stop? Remember that part we talked about several weeks ago, pray without ceasing? We only do it when we're pushed. The edge. Because we live a complacent lifestyle. When do we fast? When we have to. When we need something, we're looking for something to learn. You know, maybe I should take a day or two to fast. Some of us take an hour or two. Some of us take a week or two. But we only fast when we're pushed. We only pray when we're pushed. We only seek the Lord's wisdom when we're pushed. We're only studying scripture when we're pushed. So we know a lot about it, but we've not accepted it as truth. Because if we have, then our reaction to the world around us changes dramatically. When you accept God's word as truth, it, it dictates how you live, how you move, everything you do. But what do we do? We look in the mirror and like, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. 
I talk a faith game, but I live a fearful life. You can't do both. So when we talked about these different gifts that God has given us, the Spirit giving them, these are all given for a purpose. Every one of these. And we've been focusing in on prophecy. And now more than ever, I don't think it's a coincidence, because I don't believe in coincidences. No, that's the proper term, but I just made it up. It's not. I will trademark that and try to use it if it's not right in existence. Is that we're here in prophecy, and look at what we're dealing with. Because there have been prophets, I'm using that loosely, telling us what's going to happen, where we're going to be, and all the stuff that's going on. So we have to understand prophecy, what it is and what it isn't. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, it says, Pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. He who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, comfort to men. But he who speaks in a different tongue edifies himself. He who prophesies edifies the church. I wish that you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesy. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So we begin to look at what prophecy is and what it is. And prophecy is simply a declaration of the word of God. Whatever God said, you are declaring it. We, when we hear the word of God, we think this. This is what we think. When, when the Old Testament uh, characters, if you will, thought the word of God, they thought whatever the prophet spoke. This is a copy of whatever the prophet spoke. It is a direct word uh, from the Lord. So in that, we have to understand, okay, what is that? We saw that there are prophets, and they're simply a representative of somebody. We, of course, God, but you had the prophets of Baal. Who do they represent? Who were they speaking on behalf of? We had the prophet of Moses, which was whom? Aaron. And who did he speak on behalf of? So now we have the prophets of God, which is whom? It's all of us. Not the office of the prophet. That's a little distinction that we talked about. But more importantly, it is the fact that we are declaring the word of God. How do you declare the word of God? Well, A, you've got to speak it. Two, you've got to believe it. And three, you've got to live it. Because you declare the truth of Scripture in the way you carry your life in all three aspects. God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. That's the world we live in today. We would never directly say that, but our actions tell us that that's how we act. That's what we believe. We don't truly believe what the Word of God says. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we see these fivefold gifts. It's pastors that would teach. We see that they are listed up here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Did God give these? According to Paul, he did. So that means there are people who are called into this. According to Paul, there are. So we also know that the enemy will go and counterfeit everything, and so thus when we look last week, we see that all of these things can be falsified, right? We look at the distinction between a false prophet and one who prophesies falsely, a false teacher and one who teaches falsely, a false evangelist who is going out there propagating a message that is not lining up with Scripture, intentionally leading those astray, and one who maybe is just a little confused in Apollos, showing him a more excellent way. We see this all the time, but yet we sit there and question, and we believe everything that we read and we hear because our discernment is down, very low. I have seen people who are very mature in their faith, who are moved every time they hear something or read something. Whatever person A says in this book, that's their new doctrine. When person B says something that contradicts person A, that's their new doctrine. And so on and so forth. Here's the question. If the Word of God is our guide, should there be any sort of disparity between the two messages? No. 
Certainly not, right? But what's happened is we've looked at Scripture, and we've allowed this to happen for centuries, really, is we've looked at Scripture, and we tried to take Scripture and fit it into our situation. You ever heard somebody say, it's like, when you're reading the Bible, take out the names of somebody else that's there and put your name in there. I'm sorry. Paul did not write you a letter. That might come as a shock, but he did not have you in mind as he was writing this. He had whomever he wrote it to. So, question, this is a tough one, ready? When Paul wrote the letter to Timothy, who did he write the letter to? You guys ever seen the old Saturday Night Live bit where they had Alex Trebek and Sean Connery and all of that, right? You know, my point, I saw this the other day because Alex Trebek just died. And so they were showing a bunch of clips from this thing, and it had S in parentheses, and then words. So it's words that start with S. Sean Carter's like, I'll take swords for 400. Like, that was always a thing. As crazy as that sounds. But, but, but that's essentially what we do. We try to co-mingle this. Was it written to us or for us? It was written down for our benefit. That's clearly what Scripture says. So stop putting your name in there and read who it was written to who it was written by, and let's start there. From there, we can begin to extrapolate all the things that are going on. So when we talk about prophecy, the reason we don't understand it is because we think we know what it means, but we never stop to ask the question, what on earth is it? How does it work in the New Testament today? How do we utilize a, the office of a prophet and prophecy being given? How do we utilize all these again? You realize that that is the entirety of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That's what he's talking about. How do we utilize these gifts in the church? That means when the body comes together and assembles, this is how I expect you to act. Fair? Does that mean that, that when you're out in the street, not assembled together, and you have a word from the Lord, does that uh, parameter lie on that moment? No. It's very specific, but we try to change it into something that's not. Now, let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 again. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So he wants you to do this. He who speaks in the tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands it. However, in the spirit, he speaks mystery. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Three words there. Only one of them do we have any clue what it means. But we use the words. We don't know what it means. We think we know what it means. We don't know what it means. Has anybody ever taken the time to stop and just look, what does edification, exhortation mean? We know what comfort means. What's comfort? Probably your bed. Right? Couch, recliner. Food. Talking to myself now. But we don't stop and say, okay, what do these words mean? And why did Paul choose these? And if this is true of prophecy, then what about all these other things that we see, the doom and gloom of prophecy? If that doesn't sound edifying, sorry, comfortable in the least. Let's look at these definitions. Edification here. To build the act of building. Exhortation. To advise strongly or to urge. And to comfort means to encourage or console somebody. These are out of the Bible dictionaries that are out there. So when you're edifying something, what are you doing? It's the act of building something up. You are building, creating a foundation. You're doing something that you're in building these people up. Exhortation is a declaration, an urge to action. To advise strongly. So, let me give you an example of a strong declaration and exhortation that I've had to make to both of my boys. 
that when you are wearing your Superman pajamas, you cannot fly. In your mind, you can't. But when you stand on the back of the couch and jump off said couch, it will hurt when you land. Just look at me like I'm the only one. I know that. Yeah, that's right. You see, I'm strongly advising them, don't be an idiot. <laughs> strongly. Strongly, 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 strongly. That's the low end of the total pole of the things I can tell you. You see, when we're looking at what prophecy is doing, what is it? It's building us up. It's building something. It's exhorting. It's urging us to action. It's urging us to something. And it's comforting. We've got a problem. Because when we look at prophecy being used today, You've got those who are out there prophesying things that don't sound like any of this. There's declarations that are being made that don't sound all that great. There's a guy named Dana Coverstone, I don't remember his last name. Pastor out in some other state. I don't remember that. This stuff was sent. He's claiming that he had dreams, that he saw the corona coming. He had the dream in December, but didn't go public with it. That's always a red flag to me. Okay? Like, I could have told you, you know, guys, God told me that Brad's going to be Penn State this week. Right? I can tell you that now. I couldn't have told you that yesterday. For most of the game, I couldn't have told you that yesterday. <laughs> but the thing, so that's always a red flag to me. But there has been some people that I know that have checked him out and have said, Stuff about, you know, hey, there seems to be some legitimacy to what he's saying, that he actually did tell members of his, his church and things like that about this. He just never went on YouTube with it. And just for record's sake, a prophecy's not true until you're on YouTube. Okay? <laughs> you have to do that. So, but anyway, but from that moment, he has declared some things about it, about what's going on right now, that are not pretty. That things are going to get very, very ugly in the coming weeks and months. Does that sound comforting does that sound like edifying? Woo, I'm sure encouraged by that. Economic issues, riots in the street. I mean, he's saying all of this stuff. So we are to judge whether one a prophecy is true or not, how we receive it. The question is, does he meet the criteria of what 1 Corinthians 14 says? Our initial response is, well, no, that's not exhorting, edifying. It's not comfortable, therefore it must not be true. Well, there's a problem with that. It's how we interpret those words. Because, like it or not, if God has spoken through this man, your opinion is irrelevant. They always used to kill the prophets. They killed the messenger. I'm sure that's where that term came from. I don't like what you said. We we saw that with Ahab. He's like, God, that Micaiah guy. He always, he always prophesied bad stuff about me. I hate that guy. I hate that guy too. So, We've got to begin to look at this and see, okay, how does this fit the narrative? So let's go down to verse 26. We're in 1 Corinthians 14. It's talking about when we come together. So we can keep this in mind. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three. Each in turn, let one interpret. If there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. If anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. In the spirit of the prophets, 
are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, let's stop here. First of all, we've got to keep this in its proper context. What is Paul specifically addressing in this moment? He's addressing the order of the church assembly, how the church comes together and how one acts. So we know that first and foremost. Now, I've gone through this once, but I'm going to look at it from a little different standpoint. Number one, when we come together, each should have a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, or a revelation, an interpretation. Let all these things be done for what? Edification. Now, we go back up to verse 1 and 2. It talks about edification, exhortation, comfort. So we're doing something to edify the group here. So if you came forward, that should be something that would be what you would have. It talks about praying in a tongue of two or at the most three. Not all of you, but, you know, take your turn. If there's no interpreter, speak to yourself and to God. Two or three prophets, let the others judge. What are they judging? One of those things which are said are at least possible. If anything is revealed to another who says, fine, let the first keep silent. If you can all prophesy by one, one by one, all may learn and be encouraged. Because the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Why is that? What does that mean? That means that you are not going to just stand up. You have no control. You have the ability to speak or to not speak. Okay? This is a New Testament concept being utilized here in the church of Corinth about what prophecy and all of this has to do with what we are seeing. Now, I want to begin to look a little bit at New Testament prophets. We know about Old Testament prophets you can speak of. Most of these guys we don't know about. You know why? Because the prophets are a minor character inside of the New Testament. Do you know why? Because most of the New Testament is a fulfillment of prophecy of the Old Testament. But there were prophets throughout the entirety of the New Testament in the office of the prophet. How do we know that? Because it says so. See how simple that is? Okay, let's go to Acts chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now in the church that was at Antioch, okay? So what are we talking about? In the assembly at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Any confusion? Nope. It names these guys. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Saul being Paul. These were the guys that were prophets and teachers. Which was which? I don't know. It doesn't say. So, we see that there were prophets in the church at Antioch. Let's go to Acts chapter 11. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Oh, that's how they got there. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. You can trace that out in the story. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now, they came, the prophets comes from Jerusalem to Antioch. We see that there were prophets in the assembly there in Acts chapter 13. Then he says, guys, the Lord is showing me that there's going to be a great famine throughout the world. Which one was that? Edification, exhortation, or comfort? Exhortation. He was declaring something. He's strongly advising. Is it comfortable? No. Were they built up? No. What was the reaction? We better get ready. That was the reaction. So each according to their ability, they sent relief to Judea. So you see, this doesn't fit the typical criteria that we would say is the New Testament prophecy. It doesn't feel good. What do you mean? There's going to be a great famine. Greater is he that's in you than he's in the world. 
Listen, if there was a famine right here at home, most of us could go months without food and be okay. One, we got a freezer full of us, and some of us are well insulated. You know, we'll survive. He is just saying what God has spoke, yes? It's not edifying, it's not necessarily exhorting, it's not comfortable in the sense that we think, but yet he's, God is preparing them for what is to come. Not conveniently, does that line up with the Old Testament prophets? Absolutely. They would get dreams of famine. You got some time to prepare. Let's go to Acts chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos, and follow, the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard to set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed in Tyre. For their ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul, through the Spirit, not to go to Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting phrase. What does that mean exactly? I can't tell you 100%. Was it that they told Paul, by the Spirit, the Spirit revealed to them not to go to Jerusalem? It almost reads telepathically. They're like, I can tell Verse 5, when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. We knelt down at the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So, not too exciting there, but through the Spirit of God, they were warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Did he say why? No, they said don't go. Verse 7, and when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to uh, Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. So we know who he was because we looked at that last week. One of the seven uh, 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 deacons that was set apart. We saw his work and why he was an evangelist and all that last week. Verse 9. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So they were either prophets or simply prophesied. Whatever. Doesn't give us any more details. Virgin daughter just means young. As we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus, heard that name before, came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews in Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, let's stop. Now you have another confirmation of what the men before had said about going to Jerusalem. Now why did he have to take his belt off? And tie his hands up and do all that weird. Why not just tell him? Maybe it was for dramatics. I don't know. You see this throughout the Old Testament. I mean, there's certainly an analogy there. So now we've got two examples of a prophecy, if you will, being given for Paul. Do not go. Whatever you do, don't go. It's going to be bad for you. Is that edification, exhortation, or comfort? And the way we think of it is none of the above. So perhaps we don't understand how that gets given out. Look at Paul's response. Verse 12. Now, when we had heard these things, both we and those uh, from that place pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded... We ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. 
His response to these negative prophecies is, this is where God told me to go. I'm going no matter what. I am willing and able to die for the good of the Lord. None of this is exciting times. These guys would be very upset. They begged. I mean, it doesn't sound like that, but this pleading was non-stop. It's breaking Paul's heart because he sees how much they're hurt by they know what's going to happen. But Paul was so confident in what God had said that he refused to be moved by what he knew was coming. It didn't matter. He did not care about his own life. He did not care about his circumstances. He cared about following what God had said. Now, in the truest sense of the form, when we think of edification, exhortation, and comfort, none of these fit. So as I said before, maybe we don't understand. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 16. Peter addressing a crowd. We do not follow cunningly devised fables when we may know to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven, when we were with him on the holy mount. Now let's break this down a little bit. What were they? They were eyewitnesses of what God had done through Jesus. So he's telling, listen, we're not just out here following some story, some fairy tale that happened, hoping that it is correct, hoping that it is true. We saw it. We saw it. We saw the miracles. We saw his baptism where the Spirit of God came down on him and stayed. We heard the voice of God on the mount. We watched him die, and then three days later, come back. We watched all of you. We watched him ascend into heaven. And because of that, we have made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. This is so powerful. You can't persuade them any other way. Verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed. As a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. What prophetic word confirms everything about Jesus? All the promises, everything about his life, his death, his resurrection, and the things to come with his return. It was all confirmed through the prophets, by the life of Christ. So when it says no prophecy of Scripture, what's it talking about? It's referencing Scripture. It's saying none of those prophecies are of private interpretation. You don't get to go and tell me what you think it is. I don't care what you think it is. I care what it is. Prophecy never came by the will of man. It was only the holy men of God who spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That is prophecy. That is New Testament prophecy. It's the same thing. As you're moved by the Holy Spirit, you begin to speak the things which God had said. So you have to begin to make a distinction here of what was going on. Were the prophecies about Jesus, were they edifying, exhorting, comfortable? Again, none of the above. None of them were. Hey, guess what? Jesus is going to come. He's going to create an uproar in then he's going to be beaten. And he's going to be killed. But don't worry about that. He's going to come back. He 
good news for you is, is after he comes back, y'all are going to die because you believe. And you're going to die painfully. You aren't going to just fall asleep one night and not wake up. No, you're going to be beheaded or crucified or whatever. Boiled in oil, all the above. Not exactly words that, if we put a sign-up sheet in the, in the back and where are you really? How do you want to die for the Lord? Like we got oiled with oil, crucified upside down. You could be beheaded. I don't think many of us would be rushing to the back saying, oh, please sign me up for this one. All the things about Christ's life being prophesied was none of those things and how we traditionally think those words mean. Now, let's go back. Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Let's look at this from an Old Testament standpoint. We're going to start in verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We're talking about the Hanukkah, of, which means dedication, of the temple is built. Verse 2, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and they worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. Can you imagine Unreal. And the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests attended to their services. The Levites also with instruments of music to the Lord, which the king David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever. That's twice we see that. <clears throat> when David offered praise by their ministry, the priests sounded trumpets opposite them, while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord. For there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, where because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the fat. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days, and all Israel with him, and very, a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David and for Solomon and all his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord as his own house. Verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. Now what is interesting about that is every prophet had a visitation from the Lord. We showed that throughout the Old Testament. And I said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven, and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. We really like that. Now, here's what's interesting. What is a prophecy? It's simply a word of the Lord, right? It's all it is. God speaking through somebody. Here, God appearing to Solomon doesn't say, if I shut up heaven, if there is no rain, if I send locusts, he says when. Did God know that all of that was going to transpire? Yeah, he was the one that's going to do it. But he gives it out. If my people, who is his people, the nation of Israel, who are called by my name, who was called by his name, only the nation of Israel. 
will turn from their wicked ways. They'll pray, seek my face. I'll hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's the comfort. You see, the whole thing is how you receive it. The comforting, comforting, the exhorting, the edifying part is not in the message itself. It's in the overall promise of God. You see, promise had, or God had promised that there would always be a remnant in Israel. No matter how bad it got, there would always be a remnant. Let's read the rest of this. Verse 16. No, verse 15. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place, referring to the temple. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father, David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgment, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. So here's the comforting part. That if you walk as David walked, if you do the commandments, if you keep all of these, it will be well with you. But verse 19, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? And they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. God gives two separate scenarios. Solomon, if you worship me and me alone, and live as your father David had, and follow my commandments, then forever you will be blessed. But if you don't, here are the consequences. I will uproot you out of this land. This temple will be destroyed. It will be nothing. And people will wonder, why did God do it? And it wasn't because he wanted to. But it was because of the judgment that was coming for the disobedience to his commandments. So you got one really nice part. Hey, I like the first part. You got one really bad part. But here's the beautiful thing. They got to choose. Right? Which one you want to do? I do the good part. Until what happened? They get complacent. They get complacent. They get comfortable. They begin to slowly and meticulously breaking little parts of the law. What parts? Well, they begin to take wives from other nations. These wives bring with them bad habits. Not like us today. Wives make us better back then, cause problems. They begin to worship these other gods. They begin to sacrifice to these other gods. And when we say sacrifice, you think, okay, well, they put the guilt for the wrong path. No, there was many times they were killing their own children to these gods. I mean, goat's bad enough. And so, slowly but surely, they would begin to depart from the faith and live their own ways. And God gave them a choice. This is what's going to happen. But the edifying, exhorting, and comfortable part was always in the overall promise. No matter what you do, I will always keep the remnant. That's the part there. So let's fast forward to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. We like this one too. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is after they did all the bad stuff. They received the recompense for their actions. 
This is written by a man named Jeremiah. It was a word from the Lord that came to him. Jeremiah, you know what's good about his ministry? Not much. He was ineffective. But yet here we are. Verse 2, this happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the prince of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Demariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Paul, all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruit, take wives and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. So what's he telling you? Live your life. Get kind of comfortable. You're going to be there a while. Don't stop. Live your life. Verse 7. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Now that's interesting. Because here they are under Babylonian rule. Things were not great. But they were there as a result of the disobedience to God. God told them this is what's going to happen. Whose fault was it that they were there? It was their fault. Ultimately, they didn't keep their lands out, but that was one of the things. But it's more so than that. And then he says, pray to the Lord, for in its peace you will have peace. Pray to God that you have peace in this land. For thus says the Lord, verse 8, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name, I have not sent them, says the Lord. What were they prophesying? You're going to come out. You're going to be fine. You're going to come out. You need to just obey God. What do we see with all the false prophets? Remember, they kept saying, what did they say to Ahab? No, go in there, king. Take the land. God has delivered it to your hand this day. Only one said, nope, not going to work out well for you. You see, these prophets were not speaking by his name. They were just simply telling the people what they wanted to hear. What did they want to hear? Something edifying, something exhorting, and something comfortable. That's what they wanted to hear. It's like they had, I don't know, itching ears, seeking a voice that would maybe tickle them for them. And so they would believe these words and be, Jeremiah sounded like, don't believe these. They are not sent by me. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. Why 70 years? Because they never kept their land sabbaths. For 490 years, they were supposed to keep a land sabbath. They never did it. The math works out to 70 years in captivity. I will visit you, perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. What place? Jerusalem. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the 
place from which I have caused you to be carried away captive was the edifying, exhorting, and comfortable part. The promise of God was always the same. I will bring you out. You are here as a result of your actions, and I have driven you here. But after 70 years, I will. In other words, don't lose hope to the promise of God because of your current circumstances. Hold on to that sure word of prophecy. Did they? Some did. And I guarantee you, some listen to these other guys telling them all this other nonsense. See, that's the problem we have. We chase what we want to hear. We read our scripture and assume we know the meaning without maybe doing a little homework to say, is that really what that means? I've never thought about that. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at this. First one, it says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. This is powerful. Why did he say, I write to you the second epistle? Because he already wrote the first one. That means now he's getting another, uh, another one, another, just bringing in some more, more understanding, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So he's telling them again something he's already told them before. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us. The apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking around to the, after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now stop for a minute. Scoffers in the last day. Where's the end? Has the church been saying for 2,000 years, Jesus is coming soon. You mentioned. At what point does that message become white noise to the audience? Be like, you've been saying it for 2,000 years. Nothing has changed. Where's he at? But he's telling you. And this is what's interesting. He says, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. I think it's creation here. We change that today. Listen, this is the way it's always been. You live, you die. Nothing but stardust. It doesn't matter. But verse 5 says something fascinating. For with this they willfully forget. Now, what does that mean? You know what that literally means? They're dumb on purpose. They've chosen to not remember that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. It's going back to Genesis chapter 6. That the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by that same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is what we've got going on today. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's the comfort? It's the promise. It's not the moment. It's not the bad times. 
is the overall promise. You see, when a word of prophecy is told in any capacity, the details may seem ugly, but what do we hold on to? The promise. In Hebrews 11, it talks about all these men, that all of these men died without seeing the promise, but they knew, they knew the day was coming. You see, we have mistakenly looked at prophecy as something that makes us feel good, something that excites us, something that moves this way. We've lost sight of the fact that sometimes the details are ugly. But at the end of the day, we win. You see, that's the comforting part. That's the edifying part. That's the part that, that exhorts us. We know that this day is coming, and we know which side of history that we are on in this day. Why don't we begin to allow our actions to match our words? Quit just spatting off these faith confessions and all this other stuff. Let's live our lives like that is true. Imagine a church that would take the Word of God for what it is. That is a collection of books written by 60 or 66 books, but written by over 40 men over a 1,500-year period on three continents that every part of it coincides with one another. That there is no error, there is no gap, there is no none of that. And it gives a promise of a coming Messiah. And we live in the lifetime in which that moment had happened. And now we wait. That means that if he says salvation is now for the world, and all we have to do is receive it because it's a free gift, then that's what that means. And you can't add to that. You don't need to add to that. That's very simple. And if he said that by his stripes you are healed, then that's what that means, and then you don't have to do anything because you have received that. You see, we've got to begin to think different. When he says that we go out and preach the gospel to all the world, what should we be doing? Preaching the gospel to all the world. Yeah, we'd love to send money overseas. We don't like to talk to our neighbors. Some of us move out in the country to not have neighbors. That's not me. I don't have done that. If you've got a place, no, I'd love to have one. You know, just say I mean, but think about it. We try to avoid weird stuff all the time. Our lives are not a reflection of this. These guys, those 12 apostles, every one of them died for their faith, and we don't even like to get uncomfortable for ours. So we talk a big game, but it's time to put up or shut up. Because I'm getting frustrated with the church today. I'm not talking about y'all. I'm talking about as a general rule. Because when, when the corona hit, and you're a church that preaches healing, and you have rooms set aside that for people to bring in the sick, that you could pray for them and watch God move in their lives, for you to close down because of a virus? That's what you live for. My goodness, what a double standard we live. It is time for the church to take back its proper place. We have become nothing more than a thermometer, and we only get work up when somebody turns the heat up on us. We need to live up here. You know that verse where it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger? Do you realize how misunderstood that is? That doesn't mean don't get mad. That means don't stop getting mad. You should be angry at the things that defile God in our culture today. You should live in perpetual upsetness. Again, I'm making up words all over the place today. <laughs> that our society has gone away from its roots and are chasing this other stuff. But what do we do? Like, oh, that's bad. We should probably vote different. Why don't we become the thermostat? Let's turn the heat back up on the world. Well, the problem is we're, we're waiting on it. We're like, oh, it's going to get really ugly in the last days. That's fine. Let it be somebody else's last day. I don't need to go in the rapture. I'm good. All right? But we just get complacent. We're no different than the Israelites. You know many people I said that? Boy, if I 
If I lived the time of Jesus, my faith would be ultimate. I mean, I just have no problem believing it. Well, tell the thousands of people living in Jerusalem that didn't believe it. What makes you any different? Nothing. We believe it. We believe what we want. It's time for the church to grab the bull by the hand. We've got to change. We've got to see a distinction being made between us and the world. We live way too close. I get asked all the time, is that, you know, is this a sin? Is that a sin? You know, can I do this and not that? I'm like, you missed the entire thing. I don't see how far I can push it. Let's just see how close to God I can get. We've got to get back to our roots. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that you have bestowed upon us everything that we need to exceed in this life. Lord, not just monetarily or because we can we can be comfortable, Lord, but because you've given us a mission, you've given us the tools necessary to complete the mission. And Lord, I think you've given us the boldness to admit our deficiencies and to rise up and be who you've called us to be. Lord, I thank you for today and the opportunity that we have just and these little things, packing these boxes to send these, these gifts all over the world. Lord, I thank you that you are glorified in it. That as these things go forth, they're going to, to young kids that maybe have never heard the gospel and have absolutely nothing in their life to bring joy to them. Lord, I just thank you that we get to be a small part of that. But Lord, I thank you that we will not rest in our laurels thinking we have just accomplished something great, that this is mine, but we can do more. And I thank you, Father, that you continue to just convict our hearts of the things that need to change. That we'll quit making excuses for this is just the way we are, or I think this is okay, Lord, but that we would become more like you, that you've called us to be. Lord, I thank you that in everything that we say and do, that you are glorified. I thank you, Lord, as we prepare to eat a meal together for a time of fellowship. Lord, I thank you that it strengthens us and nourishes us, that we can be useful to the kingdom. That you didn't put us on this earth to take up space or suck up oxygen, Lord, but you put us here with a purpose and a calling in our lives, and that we will fulfill that as we live our lives wholly sold out completely to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll see you.